Thank you so much. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Beautiful service pointed our hearts and minds to Christ. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church service at this time. First through sixth grade, thank you. First through sixth grade, because they're going to be practicing tonight. All I do is preach. And that's a good thing, trust me. Matthew chapter 2. Christmas is a time in which the songs will tell us, and the commercials will tell us that it's the most wonderful time of the year. And in many cases it is, but certainly in many cases it's not just a time of rejoicing, it's also a time of sorrow for many, and surely a time of grief for many as well. Have you ever had something happen in your life that was so grieving, so terrible, so earth-shattering, that perhaps in a moment of honesty before God, which we should all share regularly, in a moment of honesty, something runs through your heart like, well, God, I'd love to see how you make something good out of this. Perhaps you're reading in Scripture and you see a promise that God gives or a character of God and there's a question. With everything going on in my life right now, is this really true? All things work together for good to those who love God. It's a promise, but in this moment, it doesn't feel like that's the case. What is this good, God, that you can bring from this sadness and grief in terrible moments in my life? Can God really redeem what looks like the unredeemable for his glory and for our good? When we read Matthew chapter 2 and we read down through verse 18, there is pain, there is suffering, there's loss, there's grief, there's wickedness, tyranny, bloodshed. And as we read this passage, perhaps we would ask the question, can any good come from this? Let's begin reading in verse 1 together of Matthew chapter 2 as we look down at our scriptures. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the old wise men came from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard of this, he was troubled. All Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them 
where the Christ was to be born, and he told them, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod by God, they departed to their own country by another way. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. And Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, for they are no more. Let's continue reading through the end of the chapter. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child with his mother and went to the land of Egypt. And when he heard that Archelaus, Herod Archelaus, was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warmed in a dream once again by God, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he should be called a Nazarene. God, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds this morning. May we be confident in your scripture as we see your word fulfilled to the letter, as we see Jesus prophesied reigning today. May you help us to find hope in Christmas. In your name we pray. Amen. The time of Messiah was supposed to be a time of blessing and prosperity. In the Old Testament, you see prophecies like mountaintops from a distance. For a while, we lived in North Carolina, and my wife and I uh, had, a, had a hobby of hiking, and we would hike up to uh, a mountaintop and look out on the Blue Ridge Mountains. 
And if you've ever seen mountains like that, you know you see peaks in the distance. And perhaps you would think, you know, I could travel to those peaks. That's not really that big of a deal. I mean, they look stacked right up against each other, right? Until you get to the first peak and then you realize in between each mountain peak is a great distance and a great valley. And so in Scripture, as the prophecies are laid out of Messiah to come, so we see the mountain peaks of history and Messiah's reign. And so the peak of Jesus coming as a baby, born to a virgin in Bethlehem of Judea, living in the city of Nazareth, and the peak of his second coming to conquer sin and to reign forever seems stacked right against each other when you read the Old Testament, and yet when you see it played out, there is great valleys of time in between those two peaks. So many reading the Old Testament, when they see Jesus born, even the disciples thinking he's coming to set up his earthly physical reign, and Jesus saying, there's time between my first coming and my second. And so those who see Jesus born in this time of Messiah coming expect a time of blessing and prosperity, and yet misunderstanding God's revelation in this way, when Messiah is born, when Jesus comes, there is suffering and hardship. And so the question is asked when Things are happening around me, and it it looks differently than what I expect. How do I respond? Do I embrace God as sovereign and in control and trust His purposes that will outlive me in my lifetime, in my knowledge? Or do I fall prey? to reinterpreting Scripture and getting bitter and angry? How would you respond in the situation that the Jews find themselves in in Matthew chapter 2? We've focused on Mary and Joseph. We focused on the Magi. And this morning, I'd like to give a specific focus to Herod and the role that he plays in the plan of redemption. Let's look at Herod's identity. Who is Herod? You know, there are several people named Herod in Scripture. There's Herod the Great. There's Herod Archelaus or Archelaus. There's Herod Antipas. There's Herod Philip. And there's Herod Agrippa I and II in the book of Acts. And so how do we keep them straight? It's difficult, but it helps to recognize that the Herod before us this morning is Herod the Great, who has three sons, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip. And then Herod Antipas follows them up in the book of Acts, Antipas 1 and Antipas 2. They each have their own uh, unique personalities in the way that they reign. This isn't a history lesson. It shouldn't be. You're welcome to study that out if you'd like. This morning we'll focus just on Herod the Great. Herod the Great, who was the Herod of Matthew chapter 2 and the Herod of the birth of Christ. Often he's called the Herod of Christmas. It helps us to understand that Herod the Great was not a Jew. 
He was placed as the king of the Jews, given that title here in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Herod the king, known as the king of the Jews. He was placed in that position by the Romans in order to try to maintain peace in the area. The Jews wanted their own king, and so kind of a, a snob to the Jews and, and, and a, to, to, to have an intermediate between the Jews and the Roman Empire, they put Herod the Great and said, you want a king, we'll give you Herod. And so they put in place someone that the Jews did not like, someone that the Jews did not get along with. There was constant friction as they had to hold him up as their king, even though he wasn't a Jew. That being said, Herod did more to bring peace between the Jews and the Romans than any king before him. He did this by reigning over the Jews with an iron fist. But historians would look back and recognize that the relationship between the Jews and Rome was brought to a peaceful stance under Herod the Great. He did this in many ways, most of them wicked. What Herod the Great is known for was being an incredible architect as he brought giant, wonderful structures to the land of Israel. He built a winter palace in Jericho. He created and built the Mediterranean seaport of Caesarea Maritima. Giant seaport where there there was none before. He built the the fortress at Masada, which is still there today, originally built as one of his palaces. He would retreat there when he felt threatened up on the mountaintop. Ended up being a fortress where the last stand of several Jewish zealots were. You can look up the story. It's a fascinating story. If you go to the Holy Land, you can still visit Masada today. We have a trip uh, to the Holy Land planned for this church January of 2024. And so we will tell you more about that uh, next month. Lord willing, we'll visit Masada and see what he built. He was also responsible for building the great temple on Jerusalem. It was his temple that Jesus stood in in the Gospels, the temple that Herod the Great built. It was destroyed in 70 AD. The western wall still stands today in Jerusalem. The historian Josephus who wrote the account on the life of Herod, said Herod had a genius for grand designs. He was known as an architect. He was known as a grand builder. And friends, he built the most beautiful temple in Jerusalem. But don't be deceived, it did not contain the presence of God. God's people, friends, are not a people of the eye, they are a people of the ear, as Mark Dever often says. Meaning, That God did not put us on this earth to build grand monuments to himself. He did not build, he did not leave us on this earth to build idols that would reflect who he is to worship. He created us to listen to his word. And thus, biblical architecture should be centered around not grand beauty, but the ability to facilitate the worship of God's people. And so Herod's temple, with its beautiful designs and its lasting architecture did not contain the presence of God. We see all through Scripture that God's people gather around His Word. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, the the, uh, walls around Jerusalem have been rebuilt, 
And what is the first thing they do? They call Ezra the scribe out. Nehemiah records Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, meaning children were there as well, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from the early morning until midday. You think our services are long. That's all he did. Gathered everyone and read the word in the presence of the men and women and all who could understand. And listen to this phrase. The ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Friend, that's the testimony of God's people. Not that people would walk in and say, look what a beautiful facility. But that people would come in and say, these people gathered are attentive to the word of God. Over and over again in the Gospels, you see Jesus repeating the phrase, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He doesn't say, He who has eyes to look, let him look. He says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. What is characteristic of those who are far from God? They will tolerate false teachers because they have itching ears. They want people to tell them what they want to hear rather than what the Bible says. Friends, make no mistake, there was a beautiful temple, but it was not filled with the presence of God because the word of God was not heeded. Let us never be confused that giving ourselves to outward conformity and external beauty is equal to true worship, nor is it equal to genuine godliness. Let us dedicate ourselves to the hearing and obeying of the Word of God. And friends, we live in a culture today where we can hear the Word of God by reading it. Where in the days of Nehemiah, illiteracy was rampant, and Ezra may have been one of the only few people who actually had access and knew how to read the word of the law. And so God's people would gather to hear it read, and we carry that on today as it is of vital importance that you hear the word of God proclaimed through preaching and teaching. But you also need to be hearing the word of God by reading it on your own. He was Herod the Great, but he was also Herod the Terrible. This is the Herod of the Christmas story that God chose to bring Christ into this world under during the most ruthless, wicked ruler in all of Israel's history. Friend, listen carefully. The gospel going forward is not determined by who's in political leadership. Messiah could have come at any time. He could have come when, when, when the Jews were, were leading their own, when, when there was just a beautiful political situation where all would have accepted him and where the king would have lifted him up. But that's not in God's providence what he orchestrated. Herod was a, I don't know, I don't know how else to put it as I was meditating, I just wrote down Herod's, he was a loose cannon by every stretch of the imagination. You see this reflected in, um, in verse 3. If you look down at chapter 2 and verse 3. If you read scripture carefully and you ask good questions, you learn a lot. And so let's read this verse carefully and see what it tells us about Herod. When Herod the king heard this, 
that there was another king of the Jews that was born king of the Jews. He was troubled, and look at the next phrase, and all Jerusalem with him. Do you have somebody in your family that when they get upset, everybody kind of holds the dishes and braces? Because you think, if that person's troubled, we're all troubled with him. And everybody knew how jealous Herod was of his throne. When they heard there was someone born king of the Jews and Herod was upset, they all braced to see what would happen. He was known for being a ruthless dictator. I can't even read to you some of the things that Herod did. History records a few that I can share. He invited his brother-in-law to vacation at his winter palace. During that, he thought that his brother-in-law might be plotting a coup, and so he decided to drown him in his pool rather than take that chance. He killed his second wife just because he thought she had committed adultery. He killed many of his sons, thinking that they were planning to overthrow him, none with any solid facts. Near the time of his death, he had all the Jewish leaders he could find arrested and gathered them in the Hippodrome, so that when he died, he gave the command that upon his death, they would also all be executed, so that people would mourn on the day that he died, knowing that his family wouldn't mourn, and none of the Jews would mourn his death. And so he just thought, let's just kill all the Jewish leaders when I die as well, so that somebody will be crying. He was a wicked, terrible man, so much so that Caesar Augustus, who appointed Herod to be the head, to be the king of the Jews, has this quote, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. And what he's saying is, Herod lives in Jerusalem, they don't eat pork. Pigs have a longer lifespan than Herod's children do. That's what he's saying. It's also a play on words with the Greek word quios um, and quios with pig and son anyway. That's a side note. But, but it's this funny statement that basically says Herod's a terrible, terrible person. Let's look at his hypocrisy in verses 7 and 8. As the wise men tell him that they're desire was to worship the king, the one who was born king, not the one who was made king by men, but born king by God. And Herod feigns, he feigns Christianity, he feigns worship of God in order to accomplish evil ends. Friends, this is something that's true of many ungodly leaders who would perhaps feign the worship of God and pretend to be something they, not, they are not in order to gain the favor of Christians and accomplish their own purposes. Friends, be very careful. Be very careful when embracing civil leaders who say they're Christians. Be very careful because many of them simply want your vote. I'm not saying that you don't vote for them. I'm just saying when somebody says, I love Jesus, it does not mean they are a follower of God. And here Herod pretends to be something he's not in order to accomplish evil means. And that's true of many who are in leadership who want to manipulate the people of God for their own ungodly purposes. His massacre begins in verse 16. 
Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. Friends, God knows the heart. Truth always wins. As ungodly leaders do, when their fury is worked out on those under their care, usually it's those who are the most vulnerable who are the recipients of their hatred. And so Herod takes out his fury on the children. Based on the timing information that the wise men gave, Herod decided to kill all the young boys, two years old and younger, in the city of Bethlehem, And just to be sure, in the surrounding hillsides, he was so set on maintaining his position as king of the Jews that he would not tolerate anyone challenging his position, even if they were two years old. I want to let you know that this event often comes to the forefront this time of year by those who reject Christianity. You need to know this. Perhaps you'll read... Articles in whatever news outlet that you follow. Maybe you will see videos on Christmas and you will come across someone who does not embrace the truth of Scripture, that does not embrace Jesus as their king, and they would reject this event because there are no other historical accounts outside of Scripture that refer to this. In other words, if you were to look at the history in the first century and the history of Herod, you would not find evidence for this killing outside the bounds of Scripture. And for those who are Christians, that doesn't serve an issue for us because we don't need anything other than Scripture to prove that this is true. But I think it's also important that we recognize that the Bible does not call us to a blind faith. We, have, we possess a reasonable faith and thus enters in what's called apologetics. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term. It's not apologizing for something. It's arguments that would defend the faith. And apologetics don't serve to argue people into Christianity. That can never happen. You're never going to stand up and have a debate with someone who's not a Christian. And at the end of that debate, they're going to say, oh, you know what? You're right. You convinced my mind. I'm now a follower of Christ. That's not how faith works. But yet apologetics prove to to show us that we have a reasonable faith, to show us and reveal to us that God has revealed himself in so many ways. You don't want to go too far on that tangent, but we need to understand that when you see arguments against Scripture in the mainstream media and by liberal theologians, you need to understand that their arguments are false in many ways. The only argument that they have against, that, that any liberal scholar or theologian would have against this account would be an argument from silence, and it would go like this. History doesn't record it, and the Bible does, therefore the Bible must be true. And that's called an argument from silence. But friends, this one, it is the weakest argument you could ever come up with. And so we have to ask the question, is it reasonable in any account that this would actually Happen, And I'd like to give you two of the many reasons why it's very reasonable to recognize that this massacre did in fact take place. We believe it because it's in the Bible, but here are two reasonable explanations that help us understand we have a reasonable faith. The first one is that we only have one really full account of the life of Herod the Great. It's given in two volumes. 
It was written by Josephus. Josephus died in 100 AD, so this was written just 30 to 50 years after the time of Christ. Written in two volumes, it gives a history of Herod's life. But it did not include everything about Herod's life. I have on my desk a beautiful ancient, or not ancient, I should say vintage, I guess, 1800s, four-volume biography of Spurgeon's life. I have both his autobiography and his biographies. And yet, no one would claim that in that four-volume set of Spurgeon's autobiography that he says everything about everything that ever happened. And so an argument from silence, just because it's not included in Josephus' record, is, is a fallacious argument. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a true argument at all. But another piece of information that helps us is to recognize that the killing of the children, as terrible as it was and as wicked as it was, didn't really hold a candle to the other wicked events in Herod's life. It would be very reasonable to recognize that that the killing of these children would not really have made news because of the other terrible things that Herod did. And that is in no way makes light of the wickedness of Herod's choice. It in no way makes light of the bloodshed of those young children. But when you look at the population of Bethlehem at that time and the surrounding hillside, you run the information of how many children were born in each household, and then you recognize they were boys, not girls. You would come to the conclusion that somewhere between 12 and 15 boys were killed, 20 at the most. Is that a lot? That's, it's, it's awful. It's, it's genocide. It's a terrible thing. But friends, when, it, when you compare that to the other wickedness and bloodshed and, 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 and multiples of people that Herod killed, and the understanding that infanticide in, in, in the first century was not seen in the wicked way that it's seen today, because we recognize that every person is born in the image of God. Often, children were born and left. It's very reasonable to understand that it's not contained in the historical record. I say all that not to prove that it's true, because, friends, we know that it's true, because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew records it as truth. But I give that to you so you will not be swayed by the false arguments of those who would try to steal your heart from Christ. The question that we have to ask is, how does the prophecy fit into the story? Because you really have two prophecies that are fulfilled here. You have the killing of the children that's tied to the prophecy from Jeremiah, and you have the fleeing of Egypt that's tied to the general prophecy that out of Egypt I've called my son. And so let's look at verses 17 and 18 and see how this prophecy fits in. It's really a fascinating detail here as Matthew records this under the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit. As God says, listen, he is Messiah. And over and over again in Matthew, fulfilled prophecy, fulfilled prophecy, as the scriptures say, as the scriptures say. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, that's Jeremiah 31. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. 
because they are no more. Jeremiah 31 is actually a fascinating passage, and if you have your Bible and you'd like to turn there, I'd like you to turn there with me. I'm going to read a couple of passages. If you have your scripture, I think it would be beneficial for you to look there. If you don't want to turn there, that's fine. Jeremiah chapter 31, just after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah and Jeremiah, near the middle of your Bible. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15 is our text that is pulled into Matthew chapter 2 for the prophecy. Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Tied to the prophecy of the children who are slaughtered as Herod works out his anger and his fury on Bethlehem. What's happening in Jeremiah chapter 31? If you have your, your ESV before you this morning and you have a heading to Jeremiah chapter 31, I think it will help you as the heading reads the following. The Lord will turn mourning to joy. This prophecy in Jeremiah references Rachel weeping from her tomb as the Jewish exiles from either the Babylonian or Assyrian, maybe even both, from, from their exile as, they were, as, as, Babylonia, as Babylon and Assyria come into Jerusalem, they conquer Jerusalem, they carry away the Jews into exile to Babylon, into exile into Assyria, and as they march the road, they march past Rachel's tomb. And Jeremiah is recounting that Rachel from her tomb is weeping as God's children are being taken into exile. And they've been conquered and they're walking into Babylon, they're walking into Assyria and they, as if they will never return, as if sin has won, as if wickedness has conquered God's people and Rachel is lamenting and her tears are crying out from her tomb for the people of God. But what Jeremiah is bringing to your attention, if you look back, we'll begin reading in verse 14 and read all the way down through verse 17, is that even though God's people are in mourning and suffering, there will come a day when God will call his people out. There will come a day when God will rescue his people. Look at verse 14. Let's begin at verse 13. Sorry, verse 13. Then the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning to joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. And then there's this cry of lamentation in verse 15. And then look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back from their own country. What does God want you to see? That in the midst 
of great suffering, there is hope. That in the midst of this genocide from Herod on the town of Bethlehem, as soldiers are going door to door asking if you have a male child two years old and younger, working out his acts of wickedness and terror on the children of Israel, on the people of God, Matthew says, don't forget, God's up to something bigger. That there's coming a time when God's people will be redeemed. There's coming a time when God will come in and bring joy and hope and peace. There's coming a time when you'll be saved. It's an incredible, incredible picture. I wish maybe one day I'll preach a whole message just on this one prophecy. Because Matthew is doing so much here. Right? He's, he's tying in the exodus to Egypt, the exile to Egypt. J- Jesus is exiled to, to Egypt just like the people were, were exiled to Babylon and to Assyria. And yet they would come back conquering. And one day Jesus will come back and conquer. He's also tying uh, this, this picture of Jesus being the fulfillment of Israel. That Israel, after they were chosen by God, failed to keep God's commandments. But yet Jesus, as the ultimate Israel, is obedient in every way. That when he's taken into the wilderness, he he, he obeys and he stays true. And Jesus is the fulfillment of what God has promised. He's the only pleasing sacrifice. And he's tying these themes together so that we can see Christ as the promised Messiah. It's an unbelievable prophecy here. That Matthew gives to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say Jesus is God. He's Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the conquering king. And even though it looks so bad right now, hope is on the horizon. There will be a day when you'll be comforted because, friends, Jesus wins always. It's amazing. The last that we hear of Herod is found in verse 19. Look there with me. What are the first four words? The first three words in the original. The first four words of our English Bible. When Herod, what's the next word? Died. Let's say that together. When Herod died. Friend, let me tell you, it doesn't matter how bad a leader is every single one of them will die and will come face to face with the creator of the universe. No human leader is forever. He died a terrible death. Unspeakable in so many ways. Friends, his sins finally caught up with him. And I would not want to be Herod kneeling before God. And on judgment day, he will have to answer for his sins. And justice will be worked out as he is cast into hell for all of eternity. Because all human rulers will have an end to their reign. But Christ sits on the throne for all of eternity. I'd like to share with you five brief takeaways from the story of Herod in Matthew chapter 2. If we were to look at Matthew chapter 2, the entirety of it as we've done this morning, and we were to 
come away with five truths. There are so many. There are an infinite number contained in this passage. But as Matthew is writing, I believe these five are an accurate representation of what he intends for us this morning. Number one, some of these I've already mentioned. The gospel is not contingent on right civil leadership, friends. Every year we're tempted to buy into the lie that if we can just get the next election right, everything will be okay. You know? Oh, if we can just get this person in this place and this person in this place. And every year we're disappointed, right? Every year. And we forget that, that the, the church's mission is to make disciples. The church's mission is to lift the gospel high. And it's not contingent on who's in leadership. Our mission always stays the same. This does not mean that we pull out of our responsibilities to be good citizens, to promote biblical morals, to promote biblical justice, and side with those who do the same. It means that we understand that our rescuer sits on the throne in heaven, not in the Oval Office. That God chose to bring Jesus into this world under Herod the Great. And guess what? The gospel went forward. No matter what happens on the cultural and political landscape in the future, your responsibility does not change. Our responsibility, lift high the gospel and make disciples of every nation. That's who we are and what we do. Number one, the gospel goes forward and is not contingent on right civil leadership. Number two, God is sovereign over all human leadership. All. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Do you know the comfort in that statement? Isaiah chapter 40, verses 21 through 24. Did you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in, in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Don't you know? We serve God. I got, God's big enough to handle anything, Right? I mean, how small is your God to think that whoever's in leadership somehow changes God's plan? I love verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not, even, have you not heard? Don't you even know who your God is? Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. Herod sets himself against God, and what does God do? He laughs. Herod, do you think you can keep me from accomplishing my mission? You're like a grasshopper. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's like, you kings, hey, I've set my king on Zion, right? You're nothing. You're nothing. Listen to Ezra 6.22. I think this is a fascinating illustration of how God does this. Listen to this. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. And the Lord had turned the heart of the king Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God. God turned the heart of the king of Assyria. Friends, God's in control of everything. There is no king, there is no president, there is no head of state who is not under the direct providence and sovereignty of God. And if you have a problem with that statement, you've got a problem with your Bible. There is no one in authority who does not serve directly under the sovereignty and providence of God. Number three, God cares for the most vulnerable. Friends, historians may not have recorded the massacre of these 15 or so little baby boys in Bethlehem, because it didn't seem worthy of history. But God did. Often it's women and children who suffer most when wickedness is allowed to prevail. And the Bible is the champion of the weak and the vulnerable. The Bible champions women and puts them on a pedestal so far above any culture, friends. Ladies, don't find your identity in what this sinful culture tells you you have to be. The feminist movement, and I don't want to get off on this tangent, but I'll just say one thing really quickly just to illustrate this. The feminist movement destroyed the value of women because here's what it said. Ladies, listen carefully. The feminist movement said, in order for you to have any value, you have to be just like men. That's what the feminist movement said. You want any value in this world? You have to be just like men. And God says, no, 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 no. You are as valuable, but I've created you different. And in a world today, we need to stand high and say, God created men and women different. And we cherish the differences. And we treasure the differences. And in a culture that's devaluing the image of God, the Bible lifts high men and women and children and says all hold value 
the same in the kingdom of God. Suffer the children to come unto me. And the disciples are saying, no, you don't want to waste your time with them. They don't know value. They're just kids. And Jesus says, don't even go there. Bring them to me. In fact, in order for you to enter into the kingdom of God, you have to have faith like a child. And so he partners with women and we see godly, godly women used in the founding of the church in the book of Acts as leaders. Don't ever buy into the lie that the Bible suppresses the role of women. That is not true at all. God cares for the most vulnerable. Number four. I know we're going quickly. Each one of these could probably be a sermon in and of itself. Number four. Human leaders always have an end to their reign. Jesus reigns forever. One of my favorite psalms in this regard is Psalm 93. Psalm 93 is a beautiful picture of Jesus sitting on his throne and um, the world is coming against him. Nations are like attacking him. But, but the, the picture, and I want to tell you this before I read it for you so you can see it. The picture is that um, waves like the ocean are crashing against a, you know, like a cliff, this giant throne, and they have no impact. Just crashing, crashing, crashing. And Jesus sits there unaffected by world leaders coming against him. Listen to Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne, God, is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Kings will come, kings will go. Human leaders will come, human leaders will go. But Jesus reigns forever. Make sure you get your king right friend. Lastly, God redeems even the most terrible acts to accomplish his gospel mission. God redeems even the most terrible acts to accomplish his gospel mission. Matthew gives us many parallels with the Advent account in the account of Pharaoh and Moses. Listen to these. In both accounts, a wicked ruler seeks to kill all the male children to suppress God's people. In both accounts, a male child is rescued who would be raised in Egypt and then returned to liberate the children of God. Moses would liberate the children of Israel from Egypt Jesus would liberate his people from their sin. There are so many accounts of of the exodus from Egypt serving as a beautiful picture of the exodus that Jesus serves in the exodus from your sin that some some would even refer to the plan of redemption as the second exodus. 
We continue to see this theme in Scripture of God using suffering to accomplish His will, friends. In the New Testament, think of the martyrdom of Stephen leading to the conversion of Saul. Think of Paul and Silas thrown in prison singing hymns and because of the wickedness of the rulers and punishing them for preaching as they sing hymns, God does a miracle and the Philippian jailer comes in and he says, what must I do to be saved? And God converts the Philippian jailer and his entire house place their faith and trust in Christ. And through the suffering of Paul and Silas, the mission of the gospel goes forward. And this is seen in the climax of redemptive history. In the greatest act of all. When another wicked ruler who would once again seek the life of God's anointed. Herod came when Jesus was somewhere between birth and two years old and it wasn't God's time. Many came in the Gospels and Jesus would say, the time is not yet fulfilled. And then when the time was right, a wicked ruler and a sinful people condemned Jesus to be crucified on the cross. And yet once again, God used this terrible act to accomplish redemption's plan. If there's one thing you pull away from Matthew chapter 2, it's that God is so big and so amazing and so wonderful and He loves you so much that He can use even the hardest things in your life for your good and his glory. Even Herod can't stop the gospel. Nothing can keep God from accomplishing his plan in your life. God is on a mission to restore you to himself and he's working everything in your life to deepen your knowledge of him and thus deepen your faith to show you that he's bigger than anything going on in your life, to show you that nothing can stop him. And would you place your faith in that God this morning? I don't know what's going on in your heart and in your life this Christmas season, but if I know our church, I know there are some deep waters that many of you are navigating. And friend, when you celebrate the Christ of Christmas, would you celebrate the truth that no matter what's going on in your life, God is bigger. God is at work. And that may outlive you. You may not see the fulfillment. Certainly Herod didn't. But God is at work in ways that are greater than you can ever imagine. He's the ultimate sovereign. He's the king of kings. Heaven rules. Jesus wins. Heavenly Father, may we center our hearts and our minds around you this morning. May we recognize that you are the ultimate king, the ultimate sovereign, reigning from your throne. May we bow before you in worship. 
May we confess our short-sightedness. May we confess our, our, our eyes that are cast on this earth. May we understand that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords who is not bound by any wicked sovereign on this earth. May we see you working in our trials. May we see you as king in our suffering. May we worship you as God on high. We thank you for giving us your word as it reveals to us who you are. And may we never lose sight of hearing your word and obeying it of your glory never being stayed by the hand of wicked men. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, can I ask you a question? Who are you worshiping this morning? Are you worshiping the God of Scripture who unfolds for you his character and being the King of kings and Lord of lords in every way? Friend, are you here and you're not a Christian? Would you bow in submission to this God this morning, recognizing Him as your King? Don't reject. Christian, what's going on in your heart? Would you cast your heart and your life at the feet of the God who will work all things according to your good in His glory? However, God is working in your heart this morning. You do business as you respond and reflect the truth of God.